Hi, welcome to Tab's Two Cents. Today on the show, we have Lawson Steele, and we're talking about carbon markets. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tab's Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Hi, Lawson. Welcome to the show. Hey, Joe. Thanks. Good to be here. Just back from uh, two weeks holding the sun, which is nice, so uh, getting stuck back into it. Yeah, just diving right back in with the podcast. That's awesome. Um, I thought we could just start with a little introduction, who you are, what you've been working on lately. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I'm by by trade, I guess, for the last 35 years or so, I've been a, an institutional equities analyst covering the utility sector around the planet. I power electricity and gas. Um, and as part of that, since 2004, I've been covering the European carbon allowance market uh, and over the last year I've sort of given up the day job of of equity analysis and focused just on carbon and uh, joined a, or set up a startup with some friends um, uh, on uh, you know on carbon called Kakubi. Awesome yeah and I want to dive into Kakubi and and what that is but before we do I thought we could just maybe have a little history of the EU ETS. I know you've been following it for a while and and what that is and, and how it differs from the voluntary markets. Yeah, I mean, that's really important because I think a lot of people do really confuse the two. Uh, the EU, when people use carbon credits and carbon offsets, they typically mean, uh, you know, things like planting trees and capturing carbon from the atmosphere. And therefore that gives you a, a green token, if you like. Uh, which you can use to offset your own emissions. So a company can decide how you know, it can pollute as much as it likes and decide whether or not to offset some or nothing or all of that uh, via buying these, these voluntary carbon uh, projects. The problem with the voluntary carbon projects are, 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 are lots at the moment, unfortunately. Um, uh, they haven't got their act together properly. Uh, there are all sorts of issues about double counting, the quality of the projects, uh, fraud, uh, and so on. And ultimately, it's a $1 billion market. And in that $1 billion market, you're talking about 12,000 different projects plus. Uh, so it means that the liquidity of the projects itself is very low. It's easy, easy to get in because people want you to invest, so you can get in quite happily. But trying to get out is really, really difficult. Uh, the This is completely different to the European carbon allowance uh, market. The EUAs or European Carbon Allowances are there to force emission reduction, right? So you, as a as a emitting company, every thirtieth of April have to go to your uh, to your government and say, look, I have emitted you know a million tons of carbon, to which you have to then deliver one million EUAs, European Carbon Allowances, and the thing is that every single year that bucket of European carbon allowances reduces because it's the EU who issues uh, those allowances. So it's, it's like one supplier um, and they reduce us each year so that by 2030, the number of allowances issued is the same as the actual climate target they have, which is a 55% reduction uh, in emissions based on 1990 levels. Uh, but the fundamental difference, therefore, is that you know, the EU carbon allowances are 
forcing a reduction in emissions, whereas the voluntary ones are, you know, offset if you like to as much as you want to, pollute as much as you like kind of thing. Uh, and the EU carbon allowance market is worth $900 billion, not one. So there is there are not multiple projects, it's, it's ubiquitous, it's just one type of carbon allowance. Uh, so you're not dividing that 900 billion by 12,000 as we did in the case of the voluntary. Uh, so it's super liquid. Uh, it's 80% of the value of the emission trading schemes around the world. So the EU one is. Uh, so it's the biggest by far. Uh, and it is forcing emission reductions. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the main takeaway for me with those markets is the voluntary carbon market is still very early and kind of messy, whereas the EU ETS has been around a little bit longer and, and there's some history there. And, you know, it's been tested as well. That The war in Ukraine is a, is a good example of that. I kind of wasn't sure what governments were going to do when that happened, or whether they were going to kind of fall back. But it seems like there are commitments that they've made and and legal obligations. I wonder if you talk a little bit about the security of the EU, ET, EU ETS allowances. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, you're kind of sort of uh, saying the right thing, I, in my view, is that, you know, in a year where you threw as much shit as you could uh, at the European carbon allowances and at the European political system, it withstood all that and came out still massively in support uh, of making sure that the climate targets are met for 2030. So if at the beginning of you know last year, uh, pre-knowing anything about Ukraine and so on, you had said, uh, we're going to have a war in U Ukraine, we're going to have massive social costs for energy, uh, and we're going to have food shortages and et cetera, um, and despite all of that, you will find that the EU will stand behind its climate targets uh, and, in fact, tighten them. Uh, you'd have thought I'd be barking mad, but that's what happened, right? So, so we've tested politically the EU, uh, and through it all, they've actually tightened up their, their emission targets. So originally, they're going to cut uh, emissions by 40% by 2030. This is all based off, off the 1990 level. But that 40% has been increased to 55% as a European whole. But for the EU emission trading scheme, which is 40% of industrial output across, or sorry, of emissions uh, in Europe, it's an even tighter target. So it's 62%. So they've, you know, they've said, okay, EU, we're going to stick by it. And we're going to put more onus on climate reduction on that on that vehicle, which means that the non-EU ETS, the other sixty percent of emissions, have a, a commensurately lighter target, shall we say, uh, than the sixty-two percent being enforced on the EU ETS. So it's it's withstood tremendous political pressures, uh, and and has come out even tighter than before. So we're going through a, a process which, as as is usual with the EU ETS uh, and Europe as a whole, uh, there's a very long deliberation uh, so that everybody can have their say, everybody can work out whether or not uh, this is, uh, you know, chew the cards so that nobody actually is surprised when they come up 
with the final legislation because there's been long lead time. So we've gone through this green process now, uh, what they call the you know, Repower EU or, or the 55 uh, process, um, which is just this, this tightening of the 2030 target. Um, and that's been ongoing now um, for about uh, two years or so. And we're now just simply in the rubber stamping. So Parliament, Council, Commission have all agreed in principle and now it has to go through the council uh, voting process and through the parliamentary voting process, which will happen. It's beginning to happen already and will finish probably by you know, June or so. And that's just simply because that's you know, lots of things they're voting on and they just need to get, get them in order. Uh, but they've, they've passed all this stuff and they've stuck by it, which is you know, amazing, really. Yeah, and you've had some calls on the EU ETS market. I know in uh, 2006, you went bearish on it and it tanked. And then, you know, 2018, you sort of switched to a bull mindset for the EU ETS and allowances. And those are both correct calls. I thought I, before we get into Kakubi and, and why that's the right way to get exposure, I thought I would just ask quickly where you think we are in the cycle with the EU ETS market. Well, look, you know, um, I mean, as you point out, I've been uh, fortunate to have called called it right um, in those two instances. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's kind of interesting just to know why. Uh, back in Jan 06, I re realized that the system was completely oversupplied. And I said the price is going to zero when, it's, when it, uh, at the time it was at 30. And it literally went to zero 11 months later. It was extraordinary, really, if you think of any commodity. It never goes to zero, right? Um, and then, uh, then they rebalance the whole system when they realize, you know, there was a whole sorts of issues about auditing and everything else, and people have been lying about the emissions, so they've been getting too many free allocations, which is why you had an oversupply. So in two thousand eight, they rebalanced the whole system. Uh, <clears throat> so. Yeah, and then you had the great financial crisis, which meant the industrial output fell, which meant emissions fell, yet the supply stayed at the same level. So you had this complete oversupply in the system. Uh, and it just got seriously, tediously dull because the carbon price was down at you know, four or five euros, which achieved nothing. Because ultimately what you're trying to do is to get the carbon price at such a level, which makes the more carbon intensive processes more expensive than the less carbon intensive processes. So... Yeah, for example, <clears throat> coal-fired electricity emits, emits twice as much carbon as gas-fired electricity. Uh, but in the past, let's go pre-Ukraine crisis, uh, you had a gas component uh, of electricity costs which was more expensive than the coal. Uh, so it's cheaper to produce with coal, but coal produces twice as much car as carbon dioxide as, as gas. So what you needed was the carbon price to increased to such a level which made the total cost of coal plus carbon more expensive uh, than the gas uh, plus carbon content. Um, so anyway, so for many years, the carbon prices in the doldrums uh, from 2013 onwards, they had a few attempts to try and rebalance the system or do something to get it going again. They're all a bit of a joke. Uh, and then on November 17, they finally agreed this proposal they've been mulling over since about 2015. Uh, and then I started doing the numbers and I thought, this is just insane. I mean, I thought I was going to spend two hours doing my updating my carbon model. Uh, and I actually did about six weeks uh, because every time I looked at it, I thought, surely this can't be right. Um, and that's when I went bullish uh, in Jan 18 when it's at eight euros. So you could argue that, you know, it's been a 11, 12 bagger 
uh, isn't that time to just you know, take it and thanks very much. Um, but the reality is, I think it's got much more upside. You know, we are probably going to hit you know, 150, 200 quite easily. And quite frankly, it could easily go way beyond that, uh, simply because you've got a, a multi-year trading deficit. So the supply into the system is not sufficient to meet uh, the emissions or, or the demand. Uh, and if you've got a multi-year deficit, then you have a problem that, uh, you know, when it when it comes to, let me just step aside for a second and explain this. So, so on the 30th of April, you know, when you've emitted your 1 million tonnes, you go to your government and you have to deliver your 1 million EUAs, European Carbon Allowances. If you don't have those 1 million, then you face a penalty price. And the penalty price at the moment is 121 euros per allowance compared to the market price of 96. So clearly out of premium. If you so A, you face a penalty price for 121, but B, you still have to deliver those allowances the following year. So you can either deliver now or next year with a 121 penalty. But if you have a multi-year deficit, then your opportunity cost in the first instance is the penalty price of 121. But when you get to that point, you realize that you still have to buy the allowances, which by that stage are trading at 121 because there's a, a deficit in the system. So then you realize the opportunity cost is not just the penalty price, it's the penalty price plus the allowance. So it's 242. So you're prepared to pay up to that level. But when you get to that level, you have the problem that you still haven't bought them because there is a deficit. Now the opportunity cost is the penalty price of 121 plus the price of the allowance, which is now trading at 242. So actually your opportunity cost is 363. And you can carry on that into infinity effectively. Um, but that's why we're getting into a situation where you know, we have deficits each year which become cumulative uh, and with well, the penalty price in place means that you know at some point this well, it just has to go north right now some point it can go only so north because there will be a political reaction again but we're nowhere near that yeah so i'm bullish <laughs> yeah and i think there's lots of reasons to look at it that way i know when i started looking into this market one of the areas that i thought i would try to research are companies that are decarbonizing faster than others especially within their own industry because that way they can they can hold on to their extra excess allowances and then perhaps sell them back into the market because um one thing i know about the eu ets is the allowances can be held indefinitely which is also i think a good reason for um your startup there kakubi because you should you should in theory be able to hold the allowances as as long as you want i wonder Maybe we can just talk about now that we have kind of have a baseline for the thesis on carbon. We can just talk about Kakubi and and what you guys are doing and why you think that that's the best way to get exposure to this market. Yeah, I mean Kakubi is quite exciting. Um, you know, as I said, I I, I threw in the day job uh, just over a year ago, uh, really because a I wanted to give it up. Um, I've, I've had enough of staring at utilities balance sheets <laughs> thirty five years. Somebody had to, um, but uh, about three or four months before that, Kakubi guys uh, got in touch with me, uh, and they'd been coming at it from the from the blockchain angle, and I'd been coming at it from surely we can do something more than just forecast the carbon price angle. Um, so it was a pretty good good marriage. And what we 
the, the reason we set it up is that there's nothing like it on chain. Um, it is today difficult uh, to buy uh, the carbon allowances, the physical, um, and there is there are lots of things you can do with it. Um, not least of which is investment, but if you want to be green or if you want to create all sorts of apps or protocols on top, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, so, so it's been, you know, we, we, we had two options uh, in the way we did this. We could have gone a bit underhand and gone to some dodgy jurisdiction and been anonymous and uh, you know, fly under the radar kind of thing. Uh, but that's not what we're about. So we've we've spent um, you know the better part of three years, I guess, in all, uh, spending an awful lot of time and money on lawyers uh, to make sure we got to to the stage where we can actually put this on uh, on chain, and that's what we've done. So you today uh, can go onto the Kakubi website. Uh, you can attach a wallet, and on the back of that. Uh, pledge the USDC you want to that you want to invest uh, we then on the background go and buy uh, the European carbon allowances and then you mint your Kakubi token KKB Kilo Kilo Bravo um, and and with that token then um, and if you want to you know redeem it you you go the other way around uh, so you can take delivery of either the EUAs if you if you are able to and want to uh, really probably only compliant uh, industrials will want to do that um, or you can take the USDC. Um, so for me, uh, you know, thinking about it from a financial perspective, if you have a portfolio, a, a crypto portfolio, for me, it's a complete no-brainer to have Kakubi in there. You've got to have a Kakubi token. Why? Because uh, the uh, Kakubi token is a completely new asset class. It's not an equity, it's not a commodity, it's not a bond. Uh, it has very low correlation uh, with those other asset classes. So it doesn't move in sync. Uh, and in a portfolio construction, if you look at any portfolio theory, it'll tell you that diversification is a very good way to reduce the risk of the portfolio while still retaining uh, the, the upside performance of it. Uh, and on top of that, you've got an asset which, if I'm right, uh, has got an awful lot of upside. So you're, so you're reducing the risk and increasing the upside. So why wouldn't you have that as a, as a significant proportion uh, of, of your portfolio? And actually, if you look at uh, you know the last 13, 14 months and plot uh, the EUA price or the Kakubi price against Ethereum or blockchain or take your pick, uh, you know, whereas they've gone down 70% or so, okay, they recovered a bit of late, uh, uh, the Kakubi or EUA has gone up about 50%. So you would have outperformed 150% uh, over that time period. Um, so, so as an investment is, is, is bleedingly obvious for me. Um, and then the second thing is actually you are being green. Well, not just green, you're being super green. It's the best type of green investment you can have. Um, and that's, you know, it's funny. Everyone likes to say, well, I, I want to be green. But when it really comes down to it, if if stuff is hitting the fan uh, as it has over the last you know the last end of last year or so financially, um, people care more about their money than being green. But in this case, you can care about your money and be super green as well. You know, you can sit around the table, you know, next week and say to your pals, you know, what have you what have you done for the climate this week? Well, 
Well, I've, I bought Kikuri, right? So I forced European companies to reduce their emissions, and I got a bloody good investment as well. Uh, so, so that that's that's what it does. Um, but there's another element too, is that because we built this on the Ethereum platform, uh, we have the what's known as the composability of of Ethereum. So, in other words, uh, people can come and build apps. Uh, for example, they might want to have an app which says, look, I can see you've just gone to Safeways to do your shopping. Uh, your carbon footprint is X. Do you want to offset with a Kakubi token? Yes, please. Bang, done. So in the background, you bought a Kakubi token uh, and, you, and you've gone, you know, you've, you've offset effectively that uh, that trip, but you still have an investment as well. Uh, or you may be on a small medium enterprise uh, and you want to design or build a much better way of of them uh getting finance or, or buying sorry buying their carbon allowances um uh you know in a more in a better way in a cheaper way than they do today uh, and you can create a protocol on top of the kakubi which does that and utilize the kakubi token in the background or I mean, there is just a plethora of things which which are going to happen you might want to create futures on chain uh you know options on chain which use kakubi tokens whatever it is you create this ecosystem right so we have essentially three phases to our growth the the simple bridge on chain of the eua market uh then you have secondary trading in the kakubi tokens and the third one is this ecosystem which we're building uh so that's kind of kakubi in a in a short and sweet no way, but it's 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 exciting. It's it's really exciting. Um, the potential is just vast. Uh, there are very few tokens on chain which are backed by assets, and Kakubi is one of those. So it's backed by RWA Reworld Asset. And uh, you know, just uh, if anybody wants to have more uh, engagement and understand what's going on in, in Kakubi and in the carbon market, come and join our Discord channel. Uh, we've got a Discord channel of about 300 members or so, so far, which has grown pretty quickly. Uh, and there we chat all things carbon and uh, and crypto and God knows what. That's awesome. I, I think you've solved a problem for people with this token. Because I know for me, when I first started looking into this market, one of the questions I had was, how do I get a real physical um, commodity out of the EU ETS. I'm in Canada, so it's it's not that easy. And I think that what you've done here has allowed me to do that. But the question that I have is, um, you're backed by Ether, and you guys, I'm assuming, will hold these assets in some kind of database somewhere. But can you buy partial tokens? And do you buy it? I mean, because these these assets, they they're kind of the price is carried by the futures. They don't close every day, correct? So, um, how do you price them and and how do you hold them, I guess? Yeah. Um, so we the EUAs we buy, um, we put in the EU Union Registry account. Uh, so the EU controls that. So it's it's extremely well looked after and regulated and safe and all that. Um, you can buy uh, a, a proportion of tokens. You know, it, can, it can be half a token, a full token, 1.7, 1 1.2, whatever you want. Uh, so it is divisible. Um, yeah, we do have a minimum order of $200, um, but but it's divisible. Um, and and so, so this 
yeah, let me just go back. So I said we've got three phases of growth. The first is the bridge, uh, which is what we're kind of in today. Uh, and there you can deposit USDC. We buy the EUA, you mint the token, and vice versa. Um, the beauty about that today is that because we've got a $900 billion market we're bridged to, we have no problems with liquidity whatsoever. So if you want to build a $5,000, $50 million, $100 million position, we can do that very quickly and exit as well, which is important because people obviously need to be able to do both ways. Uh, and then the next phase is when we get the secondary market where people are selling tokens to each other or fractions of token to each other. Uh, and that's that's coming. We're doing liquidity pools and market making and everything else. Uh, so you can uh, you can begin to at that at that point you can do whatever fraction you want, right? Um, and and just one point I want to make um, is is that you know you you say you're sitting in Canada and here you are doing something for the EU. It's not actually doing something for the EU. Um, you didn't say that, but I, I'm just, I just want to make the point that you know if you're investing in in the Kakubi token, you're forcing yes, European industrials to reduce their emissions, but they're reducing emissions into the global atmosphere. So it doesn't matter whether you're investing in Europe or you're investing in Latin America or India or China, wherever it is, you are helping the whole globe. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. They, it's the same planet for everybody, regardless of where you live. And that actually brings up a question that I had. I know that, you know, with every asset, there's always risks. And one thing, well, we can go over some of the risks maybe as you see with carbon, but I wanted to ask about the new Article 6 in the Paris Agreement. I know that they've basically what they've said is they can, they're allowing other countries to help each other with NDCs if they wish. And I wasn't sure if that could perhaps affect the EU ETS in a way of, you know, bringing in more allowances than they currently have planned. Maybe I know they're like right now they're linked to the Swiss account. It, if perhaps they were linked to some other countries and other markets, they may get those allowances from, you know, South America or whatever. Do you see that as a risk? At, you know, the sharing of emissions for the EU ETS. Do you think it could flood the market? Um, no, I don't. Is 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 the simple answer. Um, yeah, Article Six is really for is all about the voluntary carbon market, um, and whether you know, for example, if you have a project in Ghana, let's, let's call it a forest in Ghana, uh, which you have invested uh, from, you know, let's say you and I have done it right from England and Canada, putting money into Ghana, Ghana is of course has the trees and is is taking down the carbon from the atmosphere but then you've got shell who comes along says oh i'll, I'll buy that project uh, and then they claim that they're reducing carbon for the atmosphere so now you've got ghana and shell both claiming that they're reducing uh carbon from the atmosphere for the same project so you get these issues of double counting and so on um, so that's that's part of the but but then i said that that's got nothing to do with the european carbon allowance market um there is, nevertheless, is probably what you're hinting at, is, is there are uh, questions and again, discussions about whether to add or combine you know, some of the voluntary carbon uh, offsets into the EU ETS emission trading scheme. I don't think we're going to get the voluntary market integrated into the EU ETS. 
it could happen maybe in, in 20 years time once you know the emissions in Europe drop dramatically and uh, and so on uh, but for now I think it's just too messy and there's no reason why it should be it's just like I know comparing apples with pears and you're, you're going from just a European scheme to international stuff and so on and they have tried this before they tried it back in uh, in phase one and phase two, which went up to about uh, 2012, I guess it had split over into, into, into phase three, which ended in 2020. Um, but they had what they call the CERs, uh, and they did allow uh, projects around the world which were invested in and reduced emissions, providing your, you know, if you're a European company and investing in those projects, you could claim the CERs and work them into the system. But it ended up being really messy, really difficult, massive fraud, uh, and it's just a disaster. So I don't think there's any appetite for that today. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that it's a risk, but I think, as you say, since they've tried it once and it was really messy, maybe they'll think twice before they try to integrate CERs or, or offset projects in again. And I know some closed markets still do, but perhaps it's on the way out for them as well. I wonder, it's kind of interesting because the voluntary market, not to flip-flop too much here, but when I thought about blockchain solutions and carbon allowances or carbon credits, the first place that I went was to the voluntary market because it is so messy. And when you go on chain, it allows that transparency. So you can see where the offset came from, how old it is, you know, what kind of project, who made them, who sold them, and all those things that come with the on-chain transparency that you get. I wonder, do you guys have any plans with Kikubi to go with a voluntary token, or, or is it just too too detailed and kind of crazy for that? Um, I No, we don't. Um, uh, I, get so, I get inundated with requests uh, about voluntary uh, projects and people say hey, I got this great and some of these projects are good or, or on the face of it without having audited them um, uh, but there are so many I, I kind of think of the voluntary market rather like the debt market where you've got corporate debt each company has a multiple series of uh, debts uh, each of those debts each company you've got to look at it, the fundamentals of that company um, uh, and some of those debts are liquid, but I think the voluntary market actually is even worse than that because it's you you've got to do your due diligence on every single project, right? So if you want to look at this forest in Ghana to keep that theme, you've got to go down to Ghana, you've got forests, you've got to work out where they're, they're planting new trees, or is it afforestation, deforestation, they're preventing it, is, is it, would the trees have grown anyway? Uh, what happens when the trees start dying? Do they get replanted? Yes. What about the dead ones who've now released their carbon back into the atmosphere? What are you doing about that? Oh, yeah, we'd have to plant some more trees for those. And then for the others which fall over, which becomes an infinity game. Um, and then let's assume you've done all that and you're happy with all you know, numerous projects. You've lined them all up. You've looked at a thousand projects. Good luck. Um, and you come up with all your fundamental theses. Now you've got to value each one. And you can't value one against the other. It's down to your discounted cash flow for each project. And each person is going to have a different discount rate. And it's, it's just such a mess. Uh, so 
so for that reason and all the others, uh, I, I don't see us doing that. I think what we, you know, what we're likely to do uh, and will do is, is look at other mission trading schemes. And I think there will be other countries. I mean, already have some, of course, like uh, two in the states, um, you know, the West Coast, the Reggie. Uh, we've got New Zealand, China, but that's really liquid at the moment. Um, you know, you've got Switzerland, you've got UK. Uh, but I think other countries on top of that will bring new emission trading schemes or put, build new emission trading schemes. So we will grow with that. Uh, and even in Europe, I mean, crikey, you know, we've got what I call ETS-1, which is what we have today. But ETS-2 and ETS-3 are coming. ETS-2 being transport, ETS-3 being buildings. They'll come, you know, maybe in five, six years time. So, yeah, Cocoon is pretty exciting. We, we've, we've got you know, loads, loads to grow there. So if anybody's interested in uh, in participating in Kakubi itself rather than the tokens, uh, give me a shout. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just before I let you go, I'd probably be doing a disservice to any listeners without asking about the overall energy picture in general. Because I know that you've been following energy probably longer than carbon. So I think, especially with carbon allowances, you know, maybe the biggest risk is that we actually succeed and decarbonize really fast and, you know, solar takes over the planet or whatever, and there are no fossil fuels to offset. But, you know, the more you look into it, it's um, depending on how you see it. It's just kind of unfortunate that probably isn't going to happen because we're so fossil fuels are so integrated into our society. And it's most likely that we're going to continue to burn coal and and other things for longer than people think. I wonder if I could just ask you how you see the energy picture shaping up uh, moving forward, let's say, you know, 10, 20 years, just before I let you go. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, undoubtedly, um, well, if I look at if, if I look at Europe, just as an example, not because of Kakubi, but because that's, you know, the last market I've looked at properly uh, in depth the last, you know, eight years or 10 years, whatever it is. Um, uh, but it's kind of symptomatic of what's happening elsewhere. Um, so if I look at the the renewable companies, right? So uh, be it uh, Orsted, the, the Danish uh, wind producer, or RWE, who are also doing that, uh, or Iberdrola, who are also investing around the planet in renewables. Um, yeah, the, I, I hear now and again, oh, all we've got to do is accelerate the renewables growth. Well, the, you can't. Because if you look at the the supply line uh, or supply chain of, of renewables, you've got the uh, OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers like Vestas and so on, who are uh, already working at full tilt. Uh, you've got uh, RWE, Iberdrola, uh, Eon, NL, Endesa, you name them. Uh, they are also working at full tilt. They don't have any spare human capacity. Uh, they cannot get spare uh, sort of equipment. Uh, and on top of that, their balance sheets are fully utilized. They don't have any spare cash. So you can't just ramp up uh, that renewables pipeline, even though that's what you, you know, we're talking about it. That's what the EU is trying to do. And yes, it will speed up. But in the latter part of the decade, nothing's going to change over the next three, four, five years. Um, so I can't see that accelerating. Uh, you also have a, a fundamental issue today 
uh, with renewables. And you can't just say, well, you know what, we'll replace the whole fossil fuel and all the conventional generation uh, with, uh, with renewables. Well, you can't do that because today the battery technology which backs up that renewables, and by renewables I mean I mean wind uh, and solar predominantly, uh, because of the intermittency of wind and sun, because you know, it's only there for 12 hours a day if you're lucky, certainly less over here in the UK. Um, uh, although Canada's probably not too good either, is it? <laughs> um, but the, the, the battery technology we have today is brilliant for what we call peak attenuation so in other words when somebody you know say say we're we're playing the the, the sort of a cup final football cup final here soccer cup final and everybody goes off at halftime makes a cup of tea and that boosts you know electricity through the roof for that peak then the battery's really good what it's not good for is baseline right so there's a base load of energy which you know Let's say that the the uh, just to throw some numbers out. Let's say that the peak demand is 120 terawatt hours as a, as a, a unit, 120 units, and that the the least amount of electricity we use is 80. Why? Because you've always got you know, your fridges going, the in some factory lights and machines are going, uh, whatever. Right? There's always a a, a base load of electricity. Batteries are useless for that. They're not designed to, for baseload, right? So the problem with renewables is because of its intermittency, it needs something to convert that into a baseload. And we don't have that today, right? So the only way you can back up a, a, the intermittency of these units is by building a combined cycle gas turbine or a coal-fired plant uh, to back that up, that renewables up today. Uh, so, so the technology is not there. But having said all that, um, I have faith in, in human creativity uh, that when we really need to do something, we can do it, uh, and that something will come along which will be a game changer. But it's not going to happen overnight. There's nothing I've been reading which suggests we're on the brink of of doing that. Uh, but something, sometime, yeah, sure, I'd have hoped so. Yeah, and I think the only real risk to allowances would be that we innovate faster than they bring down the amount because even if even if our carbon you know starts to cut down quicker than we think there's still a reducing amount of allowances every year so it is a a good market to look at for people and i, I think that you summed up well the macro energy outlook especially in europe um I don't know if you want to touch on anything else before uh, I let you go. And then yeah, I mean, just... I'd, I'd, I'd just say on that point. Um, so I already in my assumptions presume that in industries will what we call abate carbon will reduce their carbon emissions. And I've assumed that they're going to reduce them by 30 percent uh, in the next sort of five, six years. I think that is super conservative or rather, sorry, that's super aggressive right why because you know it's going to take the carbon price to get to a certain threshold which is much higher than where we are uh, in order to make the cost of carbon for a company sufficiently high that it's actually worthwhile financially for them to invest in decarbonization so let's assume that you know we're at 150 200 euros whatever that carbon price is 
So the CEO will get all of his, his or her engineers in and say, guys, you've done a fantastic job. We are state of the art. We've, we've got our production process, which you know, we've honed over the last 5, 10, 15 years. It's perfect. It's fantastic. You're brilliant. Now I want you to go away and come back with plans to produce that by 50%. You'll have the first reaction will be people say, did I hear that right? You know, do you mean 15? No, 50. Uh, you've got you know, jaws down on the floor. Then they'll go away and then they'll come back and they'll come back with half-baked ideas. Uh, and eventually two or three, you think, yeah, they're sensible. Let's give them a go. So you start doing test pilots and projects and everything else. And they eventually think, okay, the one we want to go for is this one. And and then you finally get it fine-tuned and say, yes, this is it. Let's start rolling it out bit by bit. And then you roll it out and think, oh, actually, no, this larger scale doesn't quite work. We need to change this, that, and the other. That whole process is a, I don't know, four or five-year process, three if you're lucky, right? It's a long process. Uh, it requires ingenuity, creativity. It requires finance, right? Um, so let's so so I go back to what I said. You know, I've, I've assumed that in five years' time we reduce industry reduces their emissions by thirty percent. Actually, what it really means is more than that because most of these uh, reductions in in carbon emissions require an in, in, intensification of the electricity consumption, the processes. Which means if you're using more electricity, of course, at the other end, you're burning more carbon. So it says so the net is 30%, but the gross is probably more like 50%. Uh, so it, it, with that in my model, I'm still getting huge deficits. And that's why I think the carbon price goes up. And that's why I think the Kokubi token is pretty exciting. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's just really hard to change an industry that's been built on fossil fuels for, you know, however many years. And it, it's going to, it's going to take a lot of time and innovation and also policy change and politicians don't tend to agree on things very quickly. So there's just, there's a lot of things that need to happen to, to reach the goals. And I think he summed it up well and, and some of the difficulties they may face and, and why that could raise the allowance prices. Um, yeah, just um, with that, I thought I would give you an opportunity. This has been a great podcast, great content. Wonder if you could just share with anyone listening or watching where they can find more of your more of your content. Yeah, I mean, come on to uh, to www.kakubi.com. Kakubi is K-A-K-U-B-I. Um, on there, you will find three videos: one explaining the EU emission trading scheme. Uh, one explaining uh, Kakubi, of course, uh, and another one explaining what the difference is between these European carbon allowances on the voluntary carbon market. And also on there, you have uh, the link to our Discord channel, uh, where you can come in and everyone has discussions and ask me questions or ask them questions. And it's yeah, it's pretty cool. So, so there's that. And if you want to, uh, if you've got some idea about what would be cool to build on top of Kakubi, get in touch. You know, uh, on the Discord channel, whatever, we'll pick it up. Um, and if you're interested in investing in, in Kakubi itself, then also give me a shout. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate your time and uh, all the best with your project and any other endeavors you move into. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks. And uh, yeah, good luck as you as you grow the business. Awesome. Thank you.
Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show, so do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you.